So Ezra chapter 9, we want to read just the first four verses of this chapter. We pray that the Lord will be with us as we read and we come to God's message. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down astonied. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the, of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonied until the evening sacrifice. And we know that God will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. Now, the opening words of verse number 1, which are these, Now when these things were done, take us back into the closing part of chapter 8, in which there's a record of the arrival of the company that left Babylon and had come back to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they spent three days resting from their journey. Then on the fourth day, they attended to certain matters, namely the weighing of the silver, the gold, the vessels that had been transported from Babylon, and all of the record of that weight was then written down. And you notice how meticulously this was done, and all these matters were given the attention that they required. And it is to those matters that this statement refers at the beginning of verse 1, now when these things were done. And so the words there are really a time reference, but not only pointing us back to the four days in view at the end of chapter 8, but also focusing our minds on what was immediately about to happen. Ezra was ministering in the rebuilt temple. There's no doubt about that. We can glean that from these verses. He was ministering there. He had a sense of achievement, no doubt in his heart, because he has just led this company of people back from Babylon to Jerusalem. He also has a sense of anticipation within his soul. He stands ready to take the congregation forward into times of a blessing in a greater sense under the hand of Almighty God. And just at that very time when his heart, no doubt, is, I say, filled with achievement, a sense of achievement, a sense of anticipation, a message is brought to him that devastated this man of God. As this ninth chapter shows to us, even in these few verses that we have read today, it was a message of a fresh attack from Satan. In chapters 4 to 6 of this book, there is the record of the attack on God's work 
that came from outside of the congregation of the Lord. It came from the people of the land, as the words are. In other words, from the Samaritans who sought to stop the cause of God. Those efforts, of course, failed. And at that time, the work of the Lord went forward. But that did not mean that Satan would never attack again. And therefore, this chapter, chapter 9, reveals that he came once more against the work of the Lord, but this time from another angle. On this occasion, his attack was from within. And there you have what is basically the two-pronged attack of the devil that continues to be the method that he utilizes as is seen throughout Scripture and, of course, even in the experiences and in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. One of the places where there is an outstanding revelation of that two-pronged attack is in Acts 20, where you have the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders and warning them, first of all, of grievous wolves, referring, of course, under a metaphor of the wolf, referring to men who would enter in from without and not spare the flock of God. But then on the other hand, he went on to speak in this way in Acts 20 and refer to those of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And so those scriptures in Acts 20, 29 and 30 make it absolutely clear that there you have the two main aspects of the devil's attack on the work of Jesus Christ, either from without, outside the congregation, outside the church of God, or even more alarmingly, from within the congregation, from among those who profess the name of the Lord and who take that position even of being Christian. That attack that we read about here in Ezra chapter 9, that attack from within may have many strands to it. For example, as we learn from here and also from Scripture in general, it's the devil's policy to come in and sow, sow, sow discord among the Lord's people. Or he comes in to fill the hearts of the saints of God with apathy, with indifference, with carelessness, with prayerlessness. All of that comes among the people of God from within. Or he will seek to dilute the standards of worship. Or he will want to water down biblical doctrine. And we can keep on going with the different ways in which the attack arises from within. These are just a few of the elements of that internal attack that, instigate, that is instigated by the devil. But there's another one that is highlighted in this passage that I've read with you just a few moments ago. And it teaches us, these verses teach us, that it is the objective of the devil to undermine the position of holiness and separation that the Lord's church is to follow as is clearly portrayed not only here but throughout the Word of God as a whole. This fact, that is that the devil wants to undermine that position on separation and through holiness, is illustrated by a certain development that is identified in these four verses. We read of uh, the people 
of the congregation of Israel intermarrying with the heathen who were all around them. And that, of course, was absolutely contrary to the will of God. But here we have it. Here we have an effort being made from within by those in the congregation of God to bring about a situation where there would be a removing of themselves from the standards of God about true holiness, about separation from sin, about a close walk with God. They're seeking to divert themselves away from that by intermarrying with the heathen. And in the light of Scripture, it is absolutely clear that within the visible church, from time to time, there arises, there emerges the danger and the trend of abandoning the principle of separation from that which God has forbidden. And therefore, this event of the formation of marriages with the heathen was a ploy of the devil to pollute the testimony of that congregation that's in view in the book of Ezra, and therefore we have the explanation as to why Ezra reacted as these verses reveal to us. In verse number 3, you notice his reaction. And every detail in verse number 3 gives to us a description of the experiences of a man who is broken, a man who is grieved by sin. In verse number 3, you read of him rending his garments. You read of him plucking off his hair. Read of him in his deep astonishment. In fact, that verse tells us that Ezra was so grieved by what he heard that for a period he was unable to move, as if he were turned to stone. It tells us that he sat astonished. It's the old English word for astonishment. And indeed, sometimes it's translated astonishment. But that word, as it is here, astonished, brings out the depth of the meaning of this word. He was as if he was turned to stone. He couldn't move. He could do nothing but sit there, broken, weeping, lamenting before God because of what he found, what was reported to him, what had taken place the deep grief that he felt over the sin of his own people who had intermarried with the heathen and therefore were endangering the whole purity and the holiness of the work of God in those days. In this message this morning, as I looked at these verses, I was led by the Holy Spirit just to deal with one line of thought. We'll have to come back to these verses. There's much in them. But I want to deal with one line of thought from what we have just read. And that is the nature of the sin over which Ezra was so deeply grieved. The sin, as we've seen, was intermarriage with the heathen. Now, obviously, Ezra counted this sin as being of one of great enormity in the sight of God. He had a harrowing consciousness of what it meant, of what it actually was. We look at the words, we see his reaction, we read of his grief and his sorrow, and maybe we wonder to ourselves, why is he so bothered about this? Is this not something that does not require such a reaction? And we would be entirely wrong. Because what Ezra does here is recorded for us by the Holy Spirit to have us see and understand this morning the enormity of the sin that happens, that is committed 
when there is a departure from the standards of God with regard to how we live, whether it's at home or in our daily lives or out in the public or within the church of God in a manner that is truly an undermining of what the Lord requires of us people with regard to how they live, how they behave, the holy lives that they are to follow, the ways that they are to pursue as those who take the name of the Lord and profess to be His people. Let me tell you, my friend, it is no light matter to be a Christian. It is no trivial thing to say that you're saved, to take that stance, to have that position, and then live contrary to what that actually means. That's what we're taught here. And I'll be saying a lot about that this morning as we go through these points. And I trust that God will take His Word and bring it home to us with power and with freshness and with the authority that the Word of God possesses, that you and I will know what it is to live for the Lord and then to be grieved over the sin that does so often arise and besmirches the name of the Lord and the testimony of His church. What are the features that mark this sin that's in view over which Ezra was so grieved? Number one, it was marked by compromise. In verse number one, notice these words, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. And they go on then to talk about these they, they go on to report about these marriages with the heathen. Now, just pause when you look at that particular part of the statement. They have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. The word separated is the vital word at this stage because when it says here they have not separated themselves, it is there that we notice the matter of compromise. They had intermarried with the heathen instead of separating from them or remaining separate from them, and therefore they had compromised with them. But look at the word separated. That word is used for the very first time in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And there it's translated by the English word divided. And it's a very, very important statement where you have the first use of this word that is translated separated here. Genesis 1 verse 4, what does it say? It says this, And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided or separated. It's the same Hebrew word. God divided the light from the darkness. God saw, it tells us there, that the light was good. And therefore, He put a division or a separation between light and darkness. Now, in that language, there is, of course, the physical dimension. Light and darkness were separated by God. Light and darkness, physically speaking, do not mix. You just cannot do it. If light comes into a room, darkness is driven out. If you turn off the lights, then you're plunged into darkness. We know that. That's a fact of science. That's a fact of a physical matter that we're all familiar with in our lives. But let me tell you, there's far more to this than the physical dimension. There's a much deeper spiritual dimension 
to Genesis 1, verse number 4, God divided the light from the darkness. You see, God who foresaw that spiritual darkness would enter humanity in the fall of man, illustrated and revealed for coming generations by what He did at creation, that spiritual light and spiritual darkness do not mix. That's what God was really doing when He divided the light from the darkness. He was showing knowing that man would fall, knowing that sin would come in, knowing that darkness would overshroud the hearts of men. He was setting out by this illustration that you can't mix light and darkness, spiritually speaking, any more than you can mix them physically speaking. It's just not possible. They are incompatible. Now, the Bible bears that out in so many places. Second Corinthians 6, verse number 4. Where you have this question, just listen to the question and note what God asks and and would have us to note and to understand. What communion hath light with darkness? Now, the word communion means to have something in common. And there again, taking the physical dimension, Light has nothing in common with darkness, or darkness has nothing in common with light. And so Paul asked that question, what hath light, what communion hath light with darkness? But you see, his purpose in doing this, and of course there's a series of questions there in that part of 2 Corinthians 6, his purpose in doing this is to focus on the contrast between the properties of spiritual light and spiritual darkness. Now, light in the spiritual sense, that's the property that resides in the heart of the true Christian. If you are saved, God has given you light, and God has made you to become light in the Lord. If you don't have light in your soul, you're still in your sin. If you don't understand the gospel, if you are walking according to the ways of the world, my friend, you have no light within your soul. This is vital. And so Paul asked that question because light is a spiritual property that does dwell in the Christian. And in the Bible, light is used as the emblem of knowledge or holiness or blessedness or understanding. You can keep on going with the different qualities that are attached to the Christian being someone who has light in his or her heart. And believers have that light through the new creation. The first thing God made when He began to work there in Genesis 1 was this, when He said, Let there be light. And the very first thing that is brought into a person's soul who is born again in the moment of regeneration is that spiritual light. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that. That great verse, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's physical creation, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, Christians are described as the children of light. They are shown to be a people who have got knowledge and understanding that they once did not possess. 
their minds have been illumined by the Holy Ghost and by that mighty power that He exerts for the new birth whereby He puts a new principle of life and light into the soul. That's a Christian, my friend. A Christian is someone who has, who has got light in his or her soul. That means that they actually have the same, the same nature, but not to the same degree, of course, but they have the same nature as God Himself because the Bible says God is light. But spiritual darkness, on the other hand, is the property of the unbeliever. There is no spiritual light in the unbeliever, only darkness, and darkness in the Bible is employed time and time again as the emblem of deception, the emblem of error, the emblem of sin, the emblem of misery, the emblem of evil and wickedness of every kind. God speaks of all these ungodly qualities under the symbolism of darkness. And therefore, those who are not regenerate, those who are not saved, they're in the kingdom of darkness. They walk according to the course of this world, which is one of darkness. They are the children of darkness. And you know, most terribly of all, they, their final destination is outer darkness. The darkness, the awful darkness of hell, where there is no light, there is no hope, there is no mercy. And those sitting in this gathering today who are not converted, who are not saved, you need to take stock of your life, of your spiritual state, because if you have not Christ, if you are not in union with Him, and therefore you are not a child of light in that sense of things, and you are a child of darkness, this is your final end. But you see, this is how the Bible speaks of these matters. And this is why God put that division between darkness and light or light and darkness at the very beginning as He was creating to teach mankind in that physical way that you cannot mix spiritual light and spiritual darkness. These two properties, therefore, they are incongruous. They are mutually exclusive. That's what I meant when I said if you're in a, a room that's pitch dark and you turn on the light, the light and the darkness don't stay together. One is driven out, namely the darkness is driven out by the light. And therefore we've got to get a hold of this. The properties of light, the properties of light and darkness, spiritually speaking, do not agree. They've got nothing in common. There's nothing between them that is compatible, and therefore they are mutually exclusive. The one excludes the other. And you see, this is what was happening in Ezra's day. Light and darkness, the attempt was being made to bring them together, to mix them, and to have them become compatible but you see, that was not possible, and that is why Ezra reacted the way that he reacted, because he saw a sin that was marked by compromise. Now, the enormity of that compromise is what I want you to get a hold of today especially. The enormity of that compromise, that effort to mix light and darkness, that awful sin, is this. It is a betrayal 
of the truth of the holiness and the purity of God. That is why God divided the light from the darkness at the very beginning. Because God is light, as we have just stated from 1 John and the chapter 4, God is light. And in, or sorry, 1 John chapter 1, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And that's the chief reason why God divided the light and the darkness or between the two. In His creative act, He was declaring His own personal holiness. And therefore, before the fall and before the entrance of sin, He revealed Himself as the God of infinite, eternal, and unchangeable holiness who would remain separated from the evil that He foresaw in the fall and in the works of men as they would come into a state of sin. God was making clear, I will not compromise with the sin that the devil will introduce and that man will perpetrate throughout time. I am separate from it. And I tell you today, my dear friend, from this pulpit, that has not changed. And that is why compromise with sin in any shape or form is something that God abhors because it is contrary to the very nature and the very being of God. And when the fall of man did occur, the Lord then continued to reveal and to declare through His own Word then that light and darkness do not mix. They have nothing in common. And all that, He's revealing His own personal holiness. And He revealed that He would not tolerate the attempt to mix light and, light and darkness. I mean, spiritually speaking. He was showing in so many ways that every effort to mix the two would be a compromising of the truth of His own holiness and His own purity. And that is why God gave the command early on in history that His people, the children of light, were not to intermarry with the children of darkness. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, please. This is God's law. It always has been. And we see it coming out because that's really at the bottom of all that's going on in Ezra 9, intermarriage with the heathen. And this was a flagrant, a very, very flagrant rejection of what God had said early on and all that I've shown you already was saying this, but now come to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And look with me at verse number 3. And here's what God said through Moses. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And then go down to verse 6. This is a key verse at this stage in this message. Verse number 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And that is stated in the context of God forbidding intermarriage with the heathen. Notice it. 
He says, don't give your sons and your daughters to marry the daughters and the sons of the heathen because the Lord your God is a holy God and you are a holy people. My friend, you cannot get away from this. God placed us very strict fence around marriage. And marriage is the closest earthly bond within humanity that actually exists. There's no closer bond than a, than, than a marriage bond. Why is it so close? Because marriage is a way of reflecting the holiness of Almighty God. And therefore, He forbids those who are saved. And young people here today, note this. He forbids those who are saved, those who profess the Lord to be children of light. He forbids you to even entertain the thought of marrying someone who's not saved. It's basic. It's fundamental. It's revealed in the Word of God. And young people, simply obey the Lord and He will bless you. He will bless you. But if you disobey the Lord in this, you will not be blessed. As I say, marriage between a man and a woman is a close bond, the closest bond there actually is within humanity. It's a pointer to the bond or the union that there is between the Lord and His people. We need to get these little steps into our minds. Why is marriage so sacred? I mean, between a man and a woman. Why is it so sacred? Why is it revealed in Scripture as an institution that is fenced, that is surrounded by God in its prohibitions against intermarriage with the ungodly, the unsaved, the heathen, whoever? Why is that? As I'm showing you, it's because marriage is a pointer to the union that there is between the Lord and His people. Let me take you to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and the verses, the last two verses of that chapter, and how great are the last two but one. Uh, look at it, verses 31 and 32. It says, for, and here's a great uh, point that we need to notice here today, Ephesians 5, 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his, fle- unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now there's the union. There's the bond. A man and his woman become one flesh as they enter into marriage, and there's no closer bond than that. Your bond with your children is not as close as that. It's only with, between you and your wife, or wife, you and your husband, that you have this kind of bond. And notice what Paul says about that. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Do you see the point? When you have got a couple who are living together in marriage under God, a husband and wife, a happy, harmonious marriage, and we might make all these jokes about marriage and all the rest of it, and I know there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. I understand that. But by the grace of God, a person's marriage can be lifted to a level where there's happiness and harmony. It's because of the gospel. It's because of Christ. It's because of the work of grace in the soul. But in that marriage, we've been shown here that this is a picture of the union between Christ and His church. And so, 
God requires that His people marry only in the Lord to send out the message that He is a holy God and He will not enter into union that is unholy. That's God's position. That's God's mind. And He wants His people to follow that pattern. And never get it into your heart today. And even a word to you who are married couples here this morning or, or young people who, who maybe think about getting married and are looking for a husband or a wife, think carefully about this. You want to marry only in the Lord because you want your marriage to send out the message that your God is holy. So if you marry an unsaved person, you're not sending out that message. You're sending out the very opposite. You're saying something about God that is not true, and I'll come back to that a little later. This is why Ezra was so grieved and horrified at these marriages with the heathen. It was because when Israel married the heathen, they sent out the message that God will compromise His holiness, His glory. And therefore, Ezra is broken-hearted. That's the real reason why he's so upset. That's why he's so grieved. This sends out that message that God will compromise. They had compromised with the heathen, and now they're saying, well, we're God's people, and that meant it would be read this way. Well, then God is a compromiser too. That's a very real thing. You know, I could say here this morning, I've had the time, I could talk here, for example, also about another, another way in which we, God shows us holiness, and that's the Sabbath day. I haven't time to go into this. You study your Bible carefully, and you will find that the reason why God has earmarked one day out of the week to be His day is for the very same reason is to send out the message that He is holy. Now, if there ever was an institution, never mind marriage been compromised, if there ever was an institution that God has set up that is distorted and abused, it's the keeping of the Sabbath. And I'm not taking time, of course, this morning into all the uh, proof that the day has been changed for the Sabbath. That's clear and plain in the Bible. It's the principle that hasn't changed. The principle is there's one day in seven that belongs to the Lord. And the reason why God has fenced the Sabbath is for the very same reason, that we are to make known by our observance of the Sabbath that God is a holy God. Now, Christian, get a hold of that. You know, it's all right to have a good marriage and remain faithful to your wife, to your husband. But what do you do with the Lord's Day? How do you use it? Do the unsaved, and I have to say this because I know this is true, are the unsaved seeing Christians from Ballymena Free Church running to shop on Sunday? Are they seeing believers going here and there on the Lord's Day? visiting around, down to the shore, wherever it might be. Are they seeing that? Because, my friend, that is sending out the message that God compromises with regard to His day or anything else that He has set up to be kept holy. This is why these things are so serious. 
And I know that we're taking time here this morning. As we look at this point, this was a sin of compromise. And we're seeing how marriage is so inseparably involved with the compromise and why it was such a grievous sin and why Ezra was so broken. You see, this principle of no union with the ungodly must be maintained at every level. I've mentioned marriage, I've mentioned the Sabbath, I've mentioned countless other levels of Christian living and Christian behavior. And the same principle applies. The only way to display the truth that God is uncompromisingly holy is for His people to remain separate from compromising entanglements. Exodus 20, verse 41. You know what the Lord says there? I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. That's having to do with the Sabbath. I will be sanctified before you, sorry, uh, in you before the heathen. Ezekiel 8 verse, Isaiah, so that's Ezekiel, sorry, Ezekiel 20, 41. Isaiah 8 verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And there we have it, men and women, this morning. Let us see this, uh, whatever it might be. Let us understand why Ezra was so grieved. It was because the sin that was been formed or practiced in her marriage with the heathen was a sin of compromise. Quickly, turn back to Ezra 9. It was a sin that was marked not only by compromise, but a sin that was marked by conformity. In verse 1 again it says, uh, the people of, the, of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. And verse 2 tells you they had intermarried. But it goes on to say in verse 1, notice these words, doing according to their abominations. Doing according to their abomination. Now there's an obvious progression there. Compromise with sin, with the ungodly, leads then on to conformity to their evil practices. That's always what happens. And we've heard it said, haven't we? That when, the, unsaved, when the, the saved young person marries an unsaved individual, by and large, the unsaved partner will do his or her best to bring down the saved one, and often does. It's a snare. And so, Compromise does lead to conformity with the practices of evil and wickedness that are all around in an ungodly world. And therefore, the, the Word of God emphasizes that one cannot associate with the ungodly and remain unpolluted by their wicked influences. Why did Paul say to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, well, I want to read to you now. Listen to what he says here. Well-known words. Romans 12 verse, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now there's the body, the body of the Christian, presented as a living sacrifice. It goes on to say, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That simply means in the light of all that God has done to save you from your sins, outlined in the first part of Romans, by dealing with sin and redemption, by justifying 
those who are His from their fallen state and their ungodly ways and sanctifying them by the Holy Spirit and by the precious blood, what's expected of such a person is that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, That's your reasonable service. That's what's reasonable. That is what is right. That is what is due God. Then he goes on to say this, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The only means to nonconformity with the world is to have no affiliation with the world. Now, that's a broad subject. I haven't time to go into any explanation there. But there's the basic principle. God says, be not conformed to this world, whatever the area might be, whatever the thinking might be. And it's really the thinking of the world. And then the behavior that flows out of their thinking that's in view there. The world thinks in an ungodly way. Therefore, the world behaves in an ungodly way. And God says to His children, don't be conformed to that thinking, that that mindset, but rather be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. There's a battle for your mind, Christian. A very strenuous battle for the mind of the believer to conform to the ways of the world, its thinking. And young people are especially subject to that. Christians have been on the road for years that they know the ways of God, they understand them. And yet young people coming up, oh, how they need to be prayed for, how we need to plead with God that He will give them the mindset of Christ. That they'll realize that there's a world out there that wants to lure them and draw them and lead them away from the old paths and the old standards and conform to the ways of the world. And the Bible says, no, that's not the way to live. Why is conformity, as this sin of, in, in Ezra's day, why is it so wrong? Because it sends out a wrong message to the lost. If the lost or the unsaved around us see us who claim to be saved, conforming to the world, whatever that may be, whatever the context, whatever the actual item might be or pattern of behavior might be, if they see that happening, you know what they're going to say? well, there's a Christian or someone who says he's a Christian and he's doing the very same things that I'm doing. And he's going to the very same places as I go. And he's living the very same way as I live. What does that Christian have to offer me? You know, there's a thinking that's been around for some time that to get the unsaved saved, you go into the pub and you drink with them. You go into the dance hall and you dance with them. That is actually taught. And it's contrary to this book. Because the unsaved, you know what they're going to do? They're just going to laugh. They're going to laugh. Laugh at the Lord, laugh at Christianity, laugh at those who are, who are deceived enough to think that that's the way to win the lost. No, my friend, we want to send out the right message to the lost by godly living, by not being conformed to this world, that sends out a message that tells the people around us that they are lost 
And God blesses that and uses that. Remember this book of Ezra. Back in earlier passages, back in chapter 6 actually, and we saw this, that as they came back from Babylon, they built the temple and they were worshiping God. We were actually told there of the heathen of the land. They separated themselves from the filthiness of their former state because they saw testimony by God's people. And now, here's the tragedy. The very same people in Ezra 9 as sent out of such a glorious message in chapter 6, are compromising, and furthermore, they're conforming to the ways of the world, and therefore they are saying to the heathen around them, there's nothing wrong with how you live. There's nothing wrong with your lifestyle. You don't have to repent. You can do as you like, and so on and so on. That's the message that's going out, and that is why God says we're not, not to compromise with sin, nor are we to conform to the ways of sin. It sends a wrong message to the lost. You know what it does as well, and this is the most tragic of all, in a sense. It blurs the meaning of redemption. These people, who have intermarried with the heathen, are a people who were once captives in Babylon. And the Lord redeemed them. He brought them out, and He brought them home to Jerusalem to live for Him, to serve Him, and to be His people there uh, back in Jerusalem and in Judah. And so they are a redeemed people. And furthermore, they have come back to set up the whole stage. And I've told you this many times in this study, to set up the entire stage for the birth of Christ. Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is part of Judah. It's only a mile or so from Jerusalem, where the new temple is built. And so everything about their actions and their journey and all that has taken place and these who have come back with, 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 with Ezra at this stage, it's all pointing to the great redemptive story. And my dear friend, let me tell you from this pulpit right now that the message of redemption is the message that Jesus saves His people from their sins. Do you want the greatest, the best definition of redemption in the Bible? And there are many of them. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter starts in verse 13 and he says things like this, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear or in reverence. Then he gives the supportive foundation for that. For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. And then goes on to say, but with the precious blood of Christ. And what is the argument for holy living? It's the redemptive work of our Savior. Why did Christ die for sinners like us? To save us from our sins. It was said at His birth, Thou shalt call His name Jesus. He shall save His people from their sins. The Lord doesn't leave His people in their sins. He justifies them, then He begins to work on their lives through sanctification, and He, 
uh, in an ongoing way, He's always bringing them out, always separating them, always leading them away from the world, the flesh, the devil, all those things. And, and therefore, that's the message of redemption. And the Lord's redemptive work is the argument for the separation of the believer from evil and the abstinence of the believer from worldly carnal practices. But when the church, I mean the people of God, conform themselves to the world, to its thinking, its behavior, its ways, then the message of redemption is negatived. It is seen to be just nothing more than a philosophy, and it doesn't work. And Christ is, is dishonored. Would we not all do well to weep today like Ezra? As we examine our own lives, my friend, the Bible says, let a man examine himself. Don't examine other Christians. Examine yourself. Don't examine other churches. Examine your own church. See where we are. And see that compromise, conformity, sends out that message, not only a wrong message to the lost, that the gospel doesn't even work, but that Christ's redemptive work has failed. Do we see the seriousness of this? And the third thing is this, it was a sin that was marked by confusion. In verse 2 again, notice what it says there, the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. And there's confusion, the holy seed mingling themselves with the people of the lands. A confounding of the holy seed with the heathen through this intermarriage. And therefore the purity of the line of the holy seed was being jeopardized. And that, I want to say again, was the line from which Jesus Christ was to come. And therefore, here is confusion. And you can see the steps here. Compromise, conformity, it always leads to confusion. The doctrine of separation, the doctrine of the pursuit of holiness, is designed to avoid confusion by underlining that we're not to compromise with the ungodly, whatever it may be or whatever it may entail. We're not to conform to their ways. If we want to send out a message that is clear, plain, unadulterated, then we endeavor by the grace of God to do things God's way. And failure in the church to separate from the world through compromise and confirmation to the world results in confusion in relation to the things that pertain to Jesus Christ. His glory, His gospel, we've touched on that already, a blurred message going out. And that's what's going out today. And the call of God, I mean in many places, and the call of God to His people is to come out at every necessary level from that which is compromised and conformed and, and confused 
and live as the Lord would have us live. I close with one reference this morning that I believe in many ways sums it all up. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 12. Notice what it says. Hebrews 13 verse 12. Listen to these blessed words. Wherefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate, outside of the gate, as it says there, Then he says this, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. There are verses that are outstanding in what they're actually teaching. In fulfilling his work of sanctifying his people, the Lord went out of Jerusalem. He did not die inside Jerusalem He died outside Jerusalem because he was disassociating himself with the false religion or from the false religion of his day. And going out to that hill called Calvary, which if you went to Jerusalem today, you would actually see as outside the city walls. And there he died, and there he suffered, and there he gave himself as our Redeemer. And what's the application? Let us Go forth, therefore, unto Him. The Lord is still outside the camp. Let us, therefore, go outside unto Him, leaving the world, leaving its ways, separating unto God and to Christ for the glory of God and the honor of our Savior. May the Lord write His word in our hearts. Let us bow in prayer as we come to an end. And may the Lord take His truth today and use it in all of our lives for His glory and give us grace to pursue His ways. Father in heaven, we ask Thee to use Thy Word, to apply it with power. And O Lord, may the Holy Spirit work in us all who know Thee, who are Thy children, and have us more and more separated unto Christ. And we pray, Lord, for those among us who are not saved, that they will suddenly realize that they belong to a world that is under the curse and is destined for ruin and eternal destruction. And may there be a fleeing out of that world, out of all its sin, by such people even today as the Spirit moves and does a work in their hearts. Hear us, O God, we pray. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all of thy people, both this day and forevermore. Amen.